Titus chapter 2. Titus chapter 2, verse 11. I encourage you to turn there. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. We have so many strands of thought to feed into the loom of our meditation here this morning. And each one from this passage worthy of its own sermon, but we're just going to tug at those strings one at a time and see how far we can get in the next half hour or so, but I really want to pull out what we can from this passage about hope, referred to as our blessed hope. First, I'd like to think about the definition of hope. Unfortunately, in the English language, um, I think our understanding of hope has been largely influenced by, when I think about it, uh, maybe a couple different movies. The first one that comes to my mind is uh, Pinocchio, the Disney movie Pinocchio. You remember? What was uh, what was the little grasshopper's name? Jiminy Cricket. Jiminy Cricket. Oh, Cricket Cricket. Okay. (laughs) I'm not a fan. Anyway, Jiminy Cricket. You remember what Jiminy Cricket said? He said, Jiminy Jiminy Cricket said this. When you wish upon a star, let me get the quote out here. When you wish upon a star, makes no difference who you are. Anything, anything your heart desires will come true. If your heart is in your dream, no request is too extreme. When you wish upon a star, as dreamers do, fate is kind. She brings to those to love the sweet fulfillment of their secret longing. Like a bolt out of the blue, fate steps in and sees you through when you wish. Upon a star, your dreams come true. Unfortunately, that's what a lot of people think of when they hear the word hope. Just if I believe in it hard enough. If, and, and, and the problem with that view of hope too is you define it. Whatever it is that you just reach out, you say this is what I want. And if I believe in it hard enough, it will come true. That's not what hope is. Uh, I think another misunderstanding of hope comes from that movie, uh, um, what's it called, the uh, Shawshank Redemption. Shawshank Redemption, you got a man in prison, wrongly, maybe, and uh, spoiler alert, he escapes in the end, And but what you find out is from the moment he got in, he was planning his escape, uh, but one of the quotes in there uh, was something along the lines of, hope is... A dangerous thing. Hope can drive a man insane. And that was a wrong view of hope because the whole idea with that was hope was something that defied all evidence. There was no reason for this man to believe that he would escape. But his idea of hope is believing against all odds, I'm going to hope it anyway. Neither of those two things are biblical hope. Hope is a major theme throughout the Word of God. 160 times hope is 
referenced or addressed throughout the Bible. One of the first times that hope is mentioned in the Bible is in the book of Ezra. And it says, we have broken faith with our God and have married foreign women from the people of the land. Just think about what that confession is. We've broken faith with our God and we have gone after, committed to ourselves, committed ourselves to, and loved pagan, uh, that the pagan reality that we've been saved from says we have broken faith with our God, we have married foreign women of the people of the land, but even now there is hope for Israel in spite of this. The last reference of hope in Scripture is 1 John 3, 3. Everyone who hopes in Christ purifies himself. In fact, it's saying that we long for his appearing because when he appears, we will be like him, for we will see him as he is, and everyone who has this hope in him purifies himself. And that idea, that hope tied to the return of Christ, that's the predominant, maybe the only view of hope in the New Testament. Is that returning of Christ and our hope in it. Unlike uh, Jiminy Cricket, hope is not something that you just pluck out of the sky and you determine what it is. It's informed by Scripture. Think about a couple passages in Psalm 119. It says, my soul longs for your salvation. I hope in your word. That means this word defines our hope. We don't define our own hope. It says, you are my hiding place, my shield. I hope in your word. Uphold me according to your promises. Let me not be put to shame in my hope. And so hope is informed by the word of God. Hope is not something that we choose. Hope is something that is given to us from the word of God. Unlike the Shawshank Redemption, hope is not believing something that is contrary to all evidence. No. According to Hebrews chapter 11, verse 1, faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. So we hope in that which God assures us. He promises us something to hope in. And then he gives us evidence to track and follow. Just meditating on Romans 1 this week. And just look out at the river, look at the trees, look at the sky. And everywhere, everywhere around us we see evidence of an eternal being. God placed it there. God placed his word here. Place the spirit within us. All these things are evidences of hope. He's given us a witness. Remember what it says in 1 John. They say, hey, we're sharing with you the things that we saw with our eyes. He said, don't discredit what I saw. I'm writing it down now. We saw it. We heard it. We handled it with our hands. We felt it. We lived with it. And now we're passing it on to you. All these are evidences of the hope that we have. So hope is... An assurance that is given to us, but it's not yet realized. It's informed by scriptural truth. Hope is an assurance of things that we have evidence of. And here, in this passage, it's referred to as our blessed hope. And it specifies exactly what we hope in. The appearing of the glory of our great God, Savior, Jesus. Something else that I see in this passage when we think about the hope of Christ is this, this hope of his return is a spiritual virtue that is acquired through training. It doesn't just come naturally to you. 
It says the grace of God has appeared, training us to renounce ungodliness and waiting for our blessed hope. We get training through grace. Grace trains us to wait and watch for Christ's return. Grace trains us to not be satisfied in any other solution short of Christ coming back and redeeming all things. And so we see that grace trains us, and there's other things that come with this training. The grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions. The more in tune you are with grace, this, this is a free truth here, listen to me. The more in tune you are with grace, the more capable you are of renouncing ungodliness and worldly passions and to live upright, self-controlled, and godly lives. It's a matter of how much grace has a hold of you. And you know, I think, okay, so how, how do we... I know how I quench grace in my life. When I say yes to sin, that turns the spigot of grace off, just like that, I know because now I'm living in the power of my flesh. How do, I, how do I get more in sync with grace? You know what the Lord's been challenging me with is, I, we, you know, we're, kind of, we're Western thinkers. And I think because of that, the writings of Paul appeal to us greatly. Because he's very clear, it's, very, it's outlined, there's do's, there's don'ts. But Jesus was the personification of grace. He was grace upon grace. He was the fullness of both grace and truth. And I've just recently been challenged with the more, uh, the more in tune with grace um, I want to be, the more time I spend listening to the words of Jesus. There's, there's mystery to them. There's, there's beauty in them. They're difficult to hear and understand. In fact, they were so difficult, they would drive crowds away. But the more time we spend in the gospel, listening to the actual words of Christ, who was the personification of grace, the more we're going to be like him. We're going to see him more clearly. And Paul did a great job expounding the gospel and describing it, but let's go, and without neglecting the writings of the epistles, let's go to Christ's words. Let's definitely not neglect the words of Christ. And so when we embrace the person of grace, when we embrace the truth of grace through the gospel, this trains us to have a taste for it and not be satisfied with anything else. All we want is Christ. When you don't taste the real deal, you can be deceived. I, I think I've shared this before. My personal objection to fat-free cheese. Have I shared this before, Kevin? Okay. It's been clear. Right? The, the less you eat the real stuff, the more you can be fooled with the fake stuff. When we feast on Christ, nothing else will satisfy. Another thought that comes here from this passage is notice that even though we are waiting for something to happen in the future, it has present day effects. It says because we're waiting for this, because we're waiting for the return of Christ, and the ultimate solution that brings globally to all humanity and reaches into the depths of our own hearts, because we're waiting for that, we have a change of how we live in this present age. We're not just waiting passively for the coming age, it changes how we live right now in the present age. We have more self-control. We have more godliness. We walk uprightly. 
we disregard worldly passions. And notice the flip side of that coin at the end of verse 14. We are a people who, thanks to what Christ has done, we are zealous for good works. We're excited to do the good works. And so in, in this passage, the good works is a result of all the grace in our life. It's a result of the Holy Spirit infusing the gospel into our life. The good works is a result of us waiting for the return of Christ. And you can't get the cart in front of the horse. If I've, I've spent many years of my life laboring, laboring, laboring for good works and not enjoying any of the benefits of grace. But when I just fall into grace and let it shower over me, I find that it transforms me. And the result is zeal for good works. Another thread that I would like to kind of pull on here as we meditate upon the blessed hope and the appearing of our great God Savior Jesus Christ. Think about what, what we might currently be tempted to hope in as an alternative to Christ. What might we be tempted to hope in? Let's get real practical here. I made a list. Maybe some of these would convict you of that you put more hope in any one of these things than you're putting in the return of Christ. Uh, what about the government? Even a good government. What about, you know, we talk about, uh, you know, a Christian government. Is that what we're putting our hope in? What about education? That'll solve everything, right? Science. Here's one. Intense effort. If I just try hard enough, that's what I'm going to put my hope in. Sometimes people put their hope in the passage of time. I'm not going to do anything. I'm just going to let this work itself out. Give it enough time, it'll all be all right. Sometimes people put their hope in financial freedom. Sometimes people put their hope in a human individual, whoever that might be. Sometimes it's a spouse. Sometimes it's just a placeholder for a spouse. It's that, that future spouse that you haven't met yet. But you know they got to be out there. And when I find them, everything's going to be solved. Sometimes we put our hope in a movement or a denomination or even an individual church. And none of these, I'm not condemning any of these things. Um... Any of these things God could use in his process of infusing grace into a situation, but none of these things can replace our hope in Christ. And all of these things are only effective so much as they are rooted and stem from Christ. And with that, I think about putting our hope in Christ and contrasting our hope in Christ with those other avenues of hope. And logically, if we put our hope in the future appearing of Christ, then there's going to be some implications to that right now with how we live. And if we think about these implications, I have five implications written down. I think this will help us determine if we truly are putting our hope in Christ or if we're just giving lip service to it. Paul clearly had his hope in the appearing of Christ. But if we hope in Christ, here, here's some of the implications. The degree to which the solution involves Christ is the degree to which that solution will be effective. And the degree in which the solution does not involve Christ 
is precisely the degree that it will be ineffective. Do you believe that? you understand what I'm saying? Sometimes we have solutions, but if they don't involve Christ, they will not be effective. As much as they involve Christ, they will be effective. Let me just effective. Let me give you a personal example. I, for, for most of my adult life, well, I almost can't say most anymore, but for many, much of my adult life I suffered from depression and insomnia, even through my teen years. And, and after I became a pastor... This even troubles me more greatly. I shouldn't have to. I shouldn't deal with it. How can I help other people if I can't even? If I have this conflict in my own soul and my own mind, and I tried so many different solutions, and you know there was a lot of physical. There was some physical um, uh, contributors for sure to my depression, and there were different things that physically I would try to do to solve it. In fact, if part of this, the best shape I was ever in my life. Uh, physically, I was in the worst shape spiritually. Because I wasn't happy in here, and I wasn't happy in here, and so I thought if I eat right, if I exercise hard enough, it'll all come together. But I don't want to be that person anymore. And so there was physical contributors that I addressed, but you know what, and, 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 and depression is different for everybody, but I can tell you in my life, it's been almost a decade now since I've had any kind of depression or any kind of insomnia, and it's because I, I took the time to look at, you know what, there were some sin decisions I was continually making. There were some, some uh, value choices that I had incorporated into who I was that was not in accord with Christ. And it resulted in some debilitating circumstances in my life. But when I saw the solution as Christ, and I didn't disregard other physical components... But when I saw Christ as the solution, that's when I found salvation. Let me give you another example. Think about just in the times that we're facing today. Listen, this is, this is making the point that the degree in which a solution does not involve Christ is precisely the degree that that solution will be ineffective. Let's think about the civil rights movement. Martin Luther King Jr. You know, Martin Luther King Jr. was a Baptist. He had a doctorate in theology. He was a pastor. And unashamedly, the ideals of the civil rights movement were unapologetically rooted in Christianity. That's why it was effective. That's why it accomplished what it accomplished. Listen to a couple of these quotes from Martin Luther King Jr. Nonviolence means avoiding not only external physical violence, but also internal violence of spirit. You not only refuse to shoot a man, but you refuse to hate him. He said, darkness cannot drive out darkness. Only light can do that. Hate cannot drive out hate. Only love can do that. He said, love is the only force capable of transforming an enemy into a friend. Who's saying these kind of things today? Is that a, do you see any of that on CNN? Do you see that in any of these movements? The less a movement is converged with Christ, the less effective the, the less effective it is going to be. This is true personally, this is true culturally. You need to evaluate your hope. How closely is your hope tied to Christ? How closely is your hope tied to Christ? Here's a second implication of hoping in Christ's return. The expectation to remove all brokenness prior to Christ's return is unreasonable and unbiblical. 
Let me say that again. The expectation to remove all brokenness in this world prior to Christ's return is unreasonable and unbiblical. If we think we can get there without Christ, we're not putting our hope in Christ. The Bible teaches the opposite, in fact. It says that nature itself is groaning, longing for the return of Christ. Even nature longs for the return of Christ. We're, we're in a disjunct until Christ comes back. It says it's like birth pains. They're getting worse and worse. The Bible tells us it's going to get worse before it gets better. And this doesn't mean... Uh, that we accept the brokenness of this world. This doesn't mean that we approve of the brokenness of this world. This doesn't mean that we don't try to contain, correct, and redeem the brokenness in this world through the gospel. All it means is when we look at the brokenness in our own life, um, we recognize that it's not possibly going to all be made whole until Christ returns. That's what it means. When we look at our own failures or the brokenness of the world, do you succumb to discouragement or do you rest in hope? Without looking to Christ, this is a very discouraging reality that we live in. Without hoping for Christ's coming resolution, there's a lot to be discouraged about here. I know when I look at the failures in my own life, I just say, it's so easy to be discouraged. But then I remind you, 1 John 3, and when he appears, we will be like him, for we will see him as he is. We know that this world needs Christ. We have all of Christ, but the world doesn't yet. When he returns, it will, and then he will make all things right. Third implication of putting our hope in Christ. I'm just trying to make this practical for us, so this isn't just a doctrinal confession. Here's a third implication. The solution remains unchanged regardless of time in history or the specificities of the current iteration of sin. Societies may evolve, but the gospel does not. It doesn't require any great creativity to figure out what the solution is. It's the same solution that has always been. It's the simple, childlike gospel. It's the gospel. We don't need to suss out how we're supposed to respond. It's all clear right here in black and white. It's the same solution it's always been. Nothing is new under the sun. Jesus, uh, uh, Paul said, if there's any other gospel that comes, disregard it. This is the only one. Okay, so we don't need any other solution than what this is. If this was the solution 10 years ago, it's the same solution today. Problems only get worse when the accurate solution is ignored. Think about this in terms of your own life. Jeremiah chapter 6 verse 16 says, Look for the ancient pathways where the good way is and find rest for your soul. You don't need to innovate. It's all right here. Go back to the words of Christ. So think about in your life. There's a lot of, a lot of men and a growing number of women um, for instance, they struggle with pornography. So what would a solution be? You could download Covenant Eyes. That's an app that eliminates pornography on your browser. And, and it also sends links to other people so they see everything that you looked at. Is that a solution? Well, it's a corrective response. 
But if it doesn't involve Christ, it's not a solution. It's not a solution. We need Christ. The solution is still grace. The solution is right here. Sec, uh, Titus chapter 2, verses 11 through 14. The solution is I need the grace. I need gospel. I need my hope in Christ. And whatever your problem might be, maybe you have financial problems, maybe you have legal problems, maybe like for many years, like, like I had, you have depression. Maybe you've been hurt. Maybe you feel lost. Maybe you are at a loss. Whatever the problem you're going through, there may be many immediate corrective responses, but the solution is the gospel in Jesus Christ. Do you believe that? Do you really believe that? Because so many times we go to those, we reach for those corrective responses, and if we see a little bit of corrective results, that's it. We're satisfied with that, and we never reach for Christ. It's like if Peter is walking on the water, just decided he's going to tread water instead of reaching out for Christ. Here's another implication of hope, putting our hope in Christ's return. Listen to this. Any solution that does not extend beyond the grave falls short. Any solution that does not extend beyond the grave falls short. Many a person with a feeding tube went to hell. Plenty of people got three more years of life because of chemotherapy and then spend eternity in hell. If the solution doesn't extend beyond the grave, what are we, what are we fighting for here? What are we hoping for? The whole point of the New Testament is we've got a problem, we've got a solution that solves the greatest problem that humanity has, which is death itself. So if the solution doesn't extend beyond the grave, you're cutting yourself short. Here's my last thought on the implications of putting our hope in Christ. I say the most important for last, I believe. To set your hope on anything but Christ, if you set your hope on anything other than Jesus Christ, you are making a value judgment on Christ himself. If you put your hope in anything other than Christ, you are making a value judgment on Christ. It's a personal confession that Christ is either insufficient for your problem or unnecessary for the solution. And because of that, we put our hope in Christ. We know He is the only solution. There is nothing outside of Christ. We hope in Him. We wait for Him. We long for Him. We look for Him. And while we wait, we invite Him to express Himself through us. Jesus said this, In the world, you will have tribulation. But be of good cheer, or take heart, have courage. And what did he say next? Jesus said, I have overcome the world. He didn't say, in the world you have tribulation, but be of good cheer, you can overcome the world. He said, be of good cheer, I have overcome the world. We make a value judgment. We express a value judgment based on how little or more we depend on Christ. How little or more we long for His return. So I'm going to ask our worship team to come up. We're going to close with a song that expresses... This is just an amazing song that expresses the gospel. But it starts by confessing our hope in Christ alone. Would you stand and let's sing